Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation, where our experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom and think. Each episode features a discussion of current topics from the latest consumer trends and new products to shifts in markets and lifestyles. I'm Andrew McDougall, Associate Director of Beauty and Personal Care at Mintel, and today we're discussing Indian challenger brands and what they do to succeed. And I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues. We have Lauren Goodsit, who's our Senior Global Beauty Analyst. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. And I'm also joined by Mintel's Director of Trends, EMEA, Simon Moriarty. Welcome, Simon, as well. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us for what I think is going to be quite an enjoyable chat as we look at challenger brands or indie brands or niche brands, however you term them. Um, I guess to start us off, it's kind of that question of what is a challenger brand? We should probably sort of define that a little bit more. Uh, and a challenger brand for us, I think, is one that is defined primarily by a mindset. It has business ambitions bigger than its conventional resources and is prepared to do something bold, usually against the existing conventions or codes of the category that they're trying to break through into. They're one of these sort of disruptive brands. Uh, and while the most sort of common narrative associated with challenger brands is normally one that uh, of the underdog that they are these these underdogs, this is no longer really the most frequent form of challenger that we see. Uh, brands today are much more focused uh, more often on what they are challenging, uh, whether that's the category drivers or the customer experience, for instance. So it's much more the focus on what they're challenging rather than who they are challenging. Uh, and I know we get asked a lot of questions on this topic, so I guess we'll delve right in. And my first question to you is, what does it take then for these challenger brands to succeed? What drives them? Uh, I don't know who wants to pick this up first. Sure, I can. Uh, so I feel that with these challenger brands, with the indie brands, what they, where they really excel is that they find that untapped consumer need. They find the gap in the market where we see this need coming from consumers and no products that are really addressing that specific need. And so they are able to really look at the consumers in a different light and then create a product that steps in and fills in that gap for them. The other area where I do feel that they really excel is in creating communities. And so they really are able to talk about this untapped consumer need and then form a community of consumers who all feel that they need that specific type of product. So prior to launch or in the midst of their launch, they already have a group of consumers who want and need that product. So it really does fuel that brand or product success. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about community. I think that's from what we've seen over the last 18 months from the consumer trends point of view is the the real power of community. And I think what, what that's created is that because people have been interacting with their communities in different ways and brands have started to, to kind of tap into that a little bit differently to what they have been before, I think there's going to be lots of opportunity for these new brands, these kind of not necessarily new brands, but challenging brands, independent brands to kind of really, yeah, gain traction by jumping into those communities and understanding, I think, first and foremost, understanding who the people are that make up those communities rather than kind of going in with a product and saying, this is what you need. It's kind of understanding, as you said, those those needs and having a really strong mission, having a really strong, whether it's an ethical mission, whether it's about community, whether it's about the established industry in which they're working and they want to they want to change that or challenge that. I think as long as that mission and, and that kind of central kind of ethos behind their brand is clear, then I think there's lots of room for people to, to get on board with that. 
I love that idea that you mentioned the words there, sort of challenge and change and mission. I think that that really is kind of what it's all about. Really. It's about, again, tech, like as Lawrence said, tapping into these communities is, is such a good way to do that because it's where you're going to find a core audience. It's where you're going to build a culture, I think. Um, I know Lauren and in beauty, for example, we've spoken lots about culture as being so important. And I think, yeah, I think that's the, from what you say as well, Simon, it's kind of sets, it helps sort of mold that mission statement going forward or that, that idea of going forward. Um, and I think that's, that's important as well because I think as a, as a challenger brand or even as a, as a brand looking at inspiration from challenger brands. It's, a fact, it's, it's this idea that set aside or set out that mission to challenge something rather than challenging someone or somebody or challenging... It's very rare, for example, for you to set up a niche brand or an indie brand to go out and challenge one specific company and one company only. You're there to sort of change something, aren't you? Um, so that's why I think, I think that's a really important thing to look at, this idea of um, culture has really been the lifeblood of a challenger brand. Um, so I think that's, that's a really important sort of point to make uh, from the start. Um, and whether you are sort of on the, the sort of the challenger brand side or you're looking at it from sort of a big brand perspective, um, what, what is the importance of these brand, these types of brands and why do we need them? Why do, why, I mean, because the industry itself can't just sort of stagnate. Why, why do we need these types of brands? You know, the challenger brands really, they, to use the same word, they challenge the norm. And so they say, we're not going to accept that some consumer needs are going to go unaddressed. And they really shed light for these bigger brands to say, yes, we have all these existing products, but what else do we need on the market? You're not looking holistically at the consumer. And there are many, many needs. And obviously, as we go forward, we know that these needs will evolve. But these brands really do shed light on it. And they shake up the industry in a different way than just new product innovation. And that generally does. Yeah, the idea of disruption is really important. That's why we need challenger brands, because... It's not necessarily about the choice because, you, you know, you wouldn't necessarily get a challenger brand whose main role is to just come in and add another product that's the same as all of the other products in the market. The only difference is that it's a new brand or it's an independent brand or it's got a slightly quirky advertising campaign. You know, people won't sort of jump from from brand loyalty for those reasons. But if it's if it's about disrupting something in that market, people are more... I think more attuned to to that kind of thing. It's not necessarily this purely about the products that the, the challenger brand is offering. It's about the the ethos behind the brand and, and why it's why it's there as well. I think having that strong message is important. Um, and I think because people themselves like to challenge the norm, so we kind of re- respond well when we see brands doing that because we, you know, as as humans, we kind of crave new experiences and, and changes if they're sort of positive and. You know, you might be loyal to the same the same brands because you you like their products or their services. But I think we also we kind of have a positive attitude towards those brands that come along and disrupt that. We might not kind of all go and off buy their products instead, but it kind of creates a positive relationship with that brand, and and it's good for the brand as well in terms of word of mouth and you know people talking about it. Um, so you look at someone like Brewdog, the brewery in Scotland which is a good example of a challenge brand is its ethos wasn't to come into the beer market and just add in more beer for people to then have more choice in supermarkets or in pubs because people know what beer they like. They, they know what they can afford. They know what flavors they're into. They know what's available in their local shop. And the, the, I think the purpose of Brewdog was to disrupt what the, the beer market in the UK was like in terms of who it was targeting, how it was going about its advertising, how it was investing in sustainable initiatives, how it was kind of 
a lot of traditional brands that they were kind of releasing the same products year in, year out. They'd been around for hundreds of years in some cases. And so people respond well to that. You might not kind of think, oh, that's the best beer in the market, but it's something different. And it's it kind of shakes up the industry and it forces those traditional brands to do something different as well, which obviously is a benefit to the, the customer. It's, it's almost the, the word disruptive almost comes in a lot there then. It's, it's almost that's a good way to sort of to talk about. We talk a lot about disruptive products and disruptive brands, um, but that is ultimately what we need, what we need these challenger brands for because it could be a little bit dull and predictable if we didn't. Um, Lauren, sorry, I think I cut over you there. Um, I don't know if you had something to add to that as well. No, I was just going to add that with the challenger brands, they all have a really strong consumer focus. And it's so it isn't about, I want to bring another brand down. It's about really the consumer and what that consumer need is. And so if we look at a very well-known challenger brand like Fenty, who now we could probably move into the next phase of brands, but they really came on the market and they said there is not the shade range available for consumers that is needed. And so it wasn't, we want to take business away from other brands. It's we want to serve an underserved group. And they brought, you know, all of those shade ranges to the market, really totally disrupting it. And as we know, really changing the expectations for color cosmetics brands at the time and now going forward. And that's really important as well, because I think challenger brands in that instance are really crucial to everything in sort of consumer society, if you like, because it's not only about this huge amount of choice, like Simon said, with the Brewdog example, this idea that we, you know, people know what beers they like, they know what kind of products they want. We have so much at our fingertips or available to us now anyway, but actually having the ability to choose a brand based on what they stand for and on their actual actions as well is also really important rather than just purchasing purely just the product. You're buying much more than that now. Um, and I think it's disrupted things and it's made people, it's made people sort of take that different view on things. Now it has given more choice, but it's also given these added levels of choice based on culture and community, like you were saying. Um, and it's also this idea as well now that on top of that, the established brands, they shouldn't be seeing this as, I mean, obviously it's going to be a challenge, but they shouldn't be seeing this as a negative now. It's now, it's now a case of, okay, well, actually, yeah, we needed the market to be disrupted. We can push on now. And actually, we do see a lot of examples of established brands who now rethink uh, and sort of have changed the way they're trying to appeal to people as well. So um, it's really interesting to see um, what brands are doing in reaction to these, these challenger brands and sort of the good strategies that they have in place. Yeah, and I think it's it really varies from market to market as well, and the size of those those kind of traditional brands. Because you wouldn't necessarily get someone like Amazon changing what it does, because there's a kind of a challenger version of Amazon that's focusing more on ethicality or sustainability or whatever. Because Amazon owns online retail; it's, it doesn't need to change. It doesn't need to respond. But in terms of kind of consumer goodwill and those those the power of those communities, you know, it's a good opportunity for the likes of a big multinational like Amazon or like Google to come out and say, or this isn't about changing our business model or or changing what we do, but it's maybe what we're learning is that we need to be more open about our own internal ethics or the way that we treat our staff or the the amount we give back to the environment that's maybe not as transparent as it should be. So I think there's a there's another layer of benefit where it doesn't always kind of result in established brands changing what they do and, and sort of providing different choices to consumers. But it's those big companies, I think, have been forced over the last few years by challenger brands to to change some of their kind of practices and be more, as Lauren said, be more about their consumer. Because, you know, if you've been if you've been a market leader in a in a in an industry for 150 years, 
the likelihood is that you know that relationship with your customers has become very different to when you started and it's it's not as potentially not as important um, because you're just doing the same thing and you know that you have a market there whereas what challenger brands are doing is is building up those communities understanding the individual needs of their consumers and then that's i think having a knock-on effect to traditional brands who are maybe taking a step back and thinking yeah we do need to think about our customers more we need to ask different types of question about what they want we need to to understand how their behavior is changing and we can respond more quickly in the same way that challenge brands are able to be more agile and i think simon that relates really well and last year in our 2030 beauty and personal care trends the specific trend was identity traders but we talked about the rise of psychographics and really looking past demographics and really expanding our view of what what made up a consumer. And so really kind of looking at that full picture. And that's really where I think the indies and the challenger brands, where they came into play here is that they looked at the consumers in a different light. They didn't just take that straight demographic information and say, okay, here are the products that we need to churn out. And so they, as you said, really caused those larger, more established brands to take a look at how they were viewing the consumers and what types of products they were making to fit their needs when they looked at a more expansive view of their needs. It's interesting as well because authenticity comes into it a lot then, doesn't it, in terms of what we're talking about here? Because it really is important to whether you are one of the challenger brands, I mean, if you st- if you don't particularly stand for something or if you're just trying to exploit a, a certain scenario or a certain uh, thing that you believe in, um, you're going to get called out very quickly. Similarly, if you're a bigger brand and you try and play in these categories as well, try and play in these um, sort of uh, buzzword concepts that are happening at different times, then again, you will get sort of called out. You'll get found out um, and called out quite heavily, actually, on social media these days, again, by those same communities. So I think authenticity is, is such a key thing from what the two of you both just said there. And it, again, that can only be seen as a good thing. The fact that whether you're established in the industry or new to it, having these sort of standards, not, you know, it's not sort of set standards, but as having these sort of um, standards in place that we can, we can try and move our brands on based on. It is really interesting, I find. It's just a really interesting way to see how we can sort of bring everyone up to the level. And actually, it's useful for everyone to look at that. Um, and it also shows the power as well of having a peer-to-peer approach. Again, going back to that word community you spoke about right at the start. It's really important, I think, to have, you know, it'd be lovely to have a brand or a product that people talk about. You know, you talk to your friends about it. You have, you know, you, you can't buy that. You can't buy that kind of recommendation. Um, you know, that's a, that's a great way, especially these days right now, um, to sort of have a product endorsed uh, by uh, a loved one or someone who's closer to you. So again, this is such something that I think indie brands can play in these spaces easier because they can be closer to the culture or they can be closer to the communities. And also it's a lot quicker and easier for them to move and sort of navigate the, the market, whichever consumer goods market you're in. Um, but it, again, it doesn't mean it's just for these indie brands or just for these challenger brands. It just means we need to be doing things in a much more um, sort of authentic way. Is there anything else in particular you think that as a big, is a big brand looking in um, or even as a new brand looking to launch that we can learn from what we've seen from the challenger brands? What, what is the best way um, to go about things? I think that agility is important. Like you said, it's, it's not about a brand launching to, to challenge the global leaders. It's not about in terms of the brand global leaders, not politicians. It's not about, you know, we're going to overthrow Coca-Cola. We're going to, we're going to become the market leader in that space because that's not really a business model. It's about what well, we want to, we want to provide a, an alternative to people in soft drinks or in transport or in leisure or whichever market you want. And 
it's not about then trying to target all of you know Coke's customers or all of Amazon's customers or all of the millions of people that use Google every day. It's about being able to try things quickly, target small communities, get that word of mouth building. Um, I think when Uber launched in London, it was one person was basically responsible for getting the brand out there by just driving around and talking to people about what the brand was all about. And now look at the size of, of Uber, for example. So it's about being able to test markets quickly, being able to get feedback, direct feedback from potential customers, get the customers involved. Again, talk about BrewDog has been very successful in its involving its customers in its business. So um, opening up shares uh, very early on in, in its development, having you know its customers have a say in how the business is run. Um, and I think doing that and building that up over time, you're just creating all of these individual communities that then you know over time will, will merge into one bigger community where that brand becomes much more successful, much bigger. And I think oftentimes with challenger indie brands, we talk about they have strong brand founder stories or strong brand stories, and that that's really what draws that community in. And that isn't only for these smaller challenger indie brands. The story behind how you got where you are or where you plan to go, that's something that a brand of any size can tap into. And when we look at our data at Mintel, we know that consumers are out there, they're doing their research, they're doing their digging to make sure that brands and products align with all of their beliefs. So really crucial for these larger brands to come out and say, we see this gap in the industry. Here's how we are doing our research. Here's how we're choosing to address it. Now here is the final product um, that we are giving to you to try to solve that issue or to you know give you more options here. And so that if shouldn't be forgotten to give that story, to give all of that background information. I think a lot of time these big brands are doing all that research, all that finding all that data, connecting all these consumer points, and they're just not sharing it as much as a challenger indie brand who that's really the face and forefront of their brand is this story, is this community. And it's there for the larger brands. They just have to figure out how to communicate that in the best way. I think as well, they have to do that but also bearing in mind because they will have done all of the work, understanding their consumers, understanding their customers, what they need. They'll also have an awareness possibly more than big established brands of the importance of value, the importance of, you know, if you're coming into a market, launching a new product or a set of products or a new brand, it has to be achievable by the, the customers that you're trying to target. It doesn't have to be cheap, but, and so you're kind of competing at, at, at the levels of, of, yeah, having a stronger ethics, having that background that's more transparent, having that authentic messaging. But if all of that is done and then the product, the end result is pricing people out of the market or too expensive to get hold of, you know, it, it doesn't justify the costs. Then those challenges, you know, we see so many small brands, new brands emerging and disappearing. Um, it's the ones that kind of are able to balance all of those things that we've talked about, understanding community, understanding their mission, understanding the sort of human story behind them, but delivering that in a way that people can realistically get on board with. So um, looking at someone like Virgin Atlantic, it's, you know, it didn't come into the airline space to revolutionize what air travel is because air travel by its nature is pretty straightforward. You know, you get in a plane and you go somewhere. That's the reason people travel. But it was an understanding that customer service had to be better. It had to be more of an experience. It wasn't just getting people 
into a metal tube and flying them from A to B. People wanted to have it as a, you know, part of their memories of a holiday, part of their memories of a trip. And so by doing that without kind of being more expensive than its competitors and offering a better customer service than many of its competitors for an affordable in an affordable way, it was able to challenge the, the airline industry. And now you see, you know, all airline brands are focusing on, on customer experience more than perhaps they were 30, 40 years ago. Um, so, I th- yeah, I think there is that idea of value, understanding what value is, I think is really essential for, for challenger brands to, to succeed. And I think that the piece about customer service that you brought in is, is also really relevant within the beauty industry. So there's a direct-to-consumer fragrance brand called Sniff. And they sell fragrance online, which we know can be a very tough sell. You're unable to smell it. You're kind of reading about the notes. And what they've done is they've created this seven-day trial period. So you make the purchase, but it just goes as a hold on your credit card. You have two options of, you know, do you want to get a couple different fragrances? Do you want just one? And with the full size, you also get a sample. And so for seven days, you're able to wear that sample. If you decide this is not the fragrance for me, you send it back, charge the hold comes off of your card. Um, So really kind of looking at that element of customer service and saying, we know it's difficult for consumers to shop for fragrance online. And here's how we're going to provide a solution. And in the fragrance industry, that's been an area where we've, you know, seen people really try to figure it out. How can we communicate with consumers? Is it through color? Is it through different digital experiences? Is it through music? And how can we connect the scent to what they'll actually be smelling when they get it? But here they're saying, we understand you need to smell it. You need to wear it. Here's how we're going to do it. We're showing you that value. We're not going to charge you until you decide that it's for you. And they make that selling and buying process really easy in an industry where it can be very difficult, especially in the e-commerce space. I think that's interesting because one of the one of the things that you notice from challenger brands is that they'll come in and do something like that. And it's the reaction is almost like, why wasn't that being done already? Like challenge is that's I think that's the real power of a challenger brand is to understand it's not just finding a gap in the market for the sake of it. It's kind of being able to understand that that gap should have already been filled and we're in a good place to do it. Because of course it makes perfect sense for people to, you know, effectively rent a scent, a little poem for you there, um, effectively rent a scent to, to test it in their day-to-day life. And you kind mm-hmm. of feel, well, why weren't fragrance houses doing that already? Why, why isn't that um, an option across FMCG in general, you know, where it's, where it makes sense to do that. And then, yeah, so I think the successful challenger brands are the ones where you almost don't notice that they're challenging the norm because they're able to create their own mm-hmm. norm where something like um, subscription-based um, fragrance online um, retail becomes mainstream. And that, that way of providing people with the options and the choice becomes an expectation from consumers and you, you sort of forget again if you look at someone like uber you kind of that's now the norm for how people get get rides kind of on deli- not on demand um kind of cab hailing is the norm for a lot of people so it's almost like you don't think of uber as a challenger brand you think of uber as uber and i think that's that's the really interesting thing i think about challenger brands or indie brands or 
I, I think it's that whole point of accelerating these shifts, accelerating and almost, as you say, normalizing as well with such speed, these sort of movements towards thinking, you know, changing consumer opinion or consumer behavior, thinking, oh yeah, that's just the way we've always done it. Um, and there's so many different ways you can look at that. I mean, things like the plastic bag thing, again, that now has just become a norm thing because of the, it's just changed the way we shop. So it's just these little sort of triggers, I think, that are just set off very well. And I think challenger brands are well placed to do that because as you said, they do, they are, do have that agility to be able to do that. It's not to say that the markets um, or the categories that they're involved in would never evolve and we'd never see innovation without them. But I just think it just shows their relevance in the fact that they can push these norms. And there is negativity to it as well, because like you said, Simon, earlier on, so many brands start up and then fade out. So there are, you know, it's not just a complete positive story of, you know, you get a challenger brand right and you're made and that's it, you know, end of story. There is so many other steps to then take. Um, and I think for we've seen with a number of big established brands, it's a great way to move into markets or connect with communities is to then actually purchase one of these challenger brands when they do become successful. Um, it's in beauty, Lauren. I know we've spoken many times about so many great examples of beauty companies, uh, thinking of sort of the big players now, sort of the big four or five. They often will just buy companies that are just doing very well. And for a lot of companies, I've, I've spoken to a couple of founders at, at sort of niche brands in years gone by who've sort of said that part of the aim was to get bought. It was to do something enough to get bought, to get that new money and invest that in somewhere else. So I think for a lot of people, it is the fact that challenger brands are very relevant and very useful for people to look at. And I think now more than ever, off the back of a health pandemic where we're not sure financially where we're at, um, off the back of uh, the, the restrictions and everything globally um, sort of up in the air. Again, these challenger brands, again, can sort of attach themselves to certain uh, certain concepts or certain formats that will, again, challenge and change the norms and take us into whatever this next normal is going to be. So it's really interesting, I think, to sort of see um, sort of the success that will come from that. And obviously, there will be failure along the way with that as well. But I think it's really interesting to see the relevance of challenger brands with that in mind. Um, just to bring this sort of fully back around now, um, sort of one of my final sort of questions I wanted to ask you and bring it back around to Mintel. I know you've both uh, mentioned Mintel quite heavily, but I feel uh, very privileged actually to have Laura on the call from the beauty side of things because I know there's a number of our beauty trends. You've mentioned a couple of them already, but over the last few years, things like beauty with a brain or playing mother nature um, have all been these trends that again can help build and justify value for consumers. Uh, and you mentioned identity traders earlier. But also Simon, we're, it's really great to have you on the call as well because as a director of trends, uh, in EMEA, it's great because you can talk to us about the drivers and the pillars as well, because I know we discussed identity and value and rights, I guess, quite heavily um, in this. And I know some of the old trends such as the serving the underserved as well, that's a great way to tap into communities on that side. But are there any sort of drivers or trends that you feel um, are really relevant now, uh, given the state of play globally, but also from a challenger brand point of view? Is there, is there somewhere, something that you think is um, as anyone sort of listening to this, my key takeaways, these are really things I should be looking at and thinking about. Yeah, I think we've covered the, from a kind of the drivers of consumer behavior. Yeah, the likes of community identity are, are, are going to continue to be, the, I think, the main or some of the main kind of focuses of, of brands that come into markets and, and are starting to target different consumer groups. It's understanding the individual customer, what they what they want out of their own life, how they feel fitting into those communities in which they already exists in which they work and play and uh, just you know live their day-to-day -day lives it's how it's, it's understanding how how those will develop um, 
I think post-pandemic as well, we'll see um, health will be a real driver of, of a lot of brands across every market where it's not necessarily a brand that's offering a health solution, but it's positioned in a way that the the impact on your own well-being is more prominent than perhaps has been in the past. Um, the impact on things like self-protection, um, future-proofing, uh, sustainability and environmental issues as well will still be really important. Um, because I think what the last 18 months has proven is that people have gone through a period of, not just a period of, of concern in terms of health implications, but just a period of, of massive uncertainty. And what we've seen is that that people have changed their relationships to brands because of that. So there's there's obviously a lot of strength and power in in having the familiarity of, of a, a brand that you're loyal to, and you know the comfort element of certain products or certain services. There's a lot of power in in brands being able to communicate with us and make us feel better about our lives and safer and all of that. But there's also been a shift in the the things that some of those brands offer in terms of you know convenience, online shopping, um, the things that previously would have been a way to stand apart from their competitors. They're now expectations that we have as consumers. So a brand that comes along and says we can offer, you know, delivery, next day delivery, that's not an incentive to choose that brand because you can buy products that get delivered to your house in 15 minutes. So I think we've seen some of the things that were quite new as drivers of consumer behavior over the last few years, like instant delivery, like online um, platforms, like using technology to interact with the brand through social media platforms. Those things are suddenly not new anymore. I think that's an important thing for brands to think about. This stuff that we kind of still consider to be new, um, contactless payment, all of that kind of thing, that's now the mainstream it's now the norm and the pandemic has has accelerated that so there's going to be a i think post-pandemic there's going to be a, almost a a reset of what is it that will stand apart for brands and it, i think it will fall back to things like what they stand for from an environmental point of view their social good status um much more than the products that they're selling it's about how they exist in in the same world as their customers and what benefits they're providing as a result and we had a trend, and Andrew, you'll have to correct me on the year, I want to say 2017 or 2018, called My Beauty, My Rules. And that probably is one of the most used trends that we all use throughout our different content pieces. Um, but that, I think, really rings true in this period of time, as well as in this conversation with challenger brands, that it is all about the consumer. And it is about doing that deeper dive figuring out where those nuances are, what they're looking for. It's about being better ethically. It's about showing you know, how you're sourcing your ingredients. It's kind of the whole process, but the consumers have really changed the expectations that are placed on brands and the brands that are really able to listen to those consumers and to find options to fill those needs, those are the brands that are succeeding, not only with the challenger indie brands, but with larger brands as well. Um, and that, that trend really rings true, especially right now, that you have to really listen to your consumer. You need to be able to get into those communities to really figure out the ins and outs that go beyond just that basic demographic information. Yeah, 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 that was a it was a 2018 trend that one, Lauren. Um, and this, that same year, we also had a trend called campaign capital as 
as well, which was looking at, again, aligning consumers looking to align their beliefs and their values with brands, um, which again has, has sort of evolved uh, since uh, those sort of four, three, four years since we launched those trends. Um, but I, it kind of sort of still sort of rings true now. Um, so sort of when you think about it, and like as Simon said there, the, the social side of things and the uh, sustainability side of things, again, these are all these were all apparent before the pandemic and there were always things that brands were looking to align to. But now again, it's been accelerated. This shift has been made and it is a way to differentiate. Um, again, you have to make sure you do it authentically because you will get called out. Um, but that's a whole new podcast talking about how brands have got it wrong. Um, but there, there is, it is so interesting now to see how this evolution is being made possible. Um, again, given everything the challenger brands do, but also everything that the pandemic has brought about as well. I think it's... Um it's also worth saying that we talk about values and, and ethical behavior of brands and particular challenger brands as a way to send out. I think it, it doesn't always have to be as kind of heavy as that. It doesn't have to be this kind of deep and meaningful kind of thing. I think there will be an expectation that brands, regardless of whether they've been around for a hundred years or two years, have sustainable initiatives, have green credentials have an ethical um, corporate social responsibility. So again, it's, it's not a kind of differentiator. It's an expectation that we have. And that, that gives more room for those brands, regardless of whether you're a challenger brand, an independent brand, a mainstream brand. There's more room then to, to kind of look at how else you can appeal to consumers. So it doesn't, you know, you, you could have a very strong sustainability um, kind of mindset as the central point of your brand but that doesn't necessarily have to be all that you you are selling to your your customers you could be doing that in a you know focusing on the products the benefits of the products that you make it could be focusing on you know um the playfulness of your advertising so there are there are so many like you know countless other things that people latch onto you could you could become loyal to a brand because you like the sense of humor that brand has in its marketing and the fact that that brand delivers your products in a you know sustainable packaging is almost a, a side you know a side benefit it's kind of almost an expectation they would do that that's not necessarily the reason that you've chosen that brand. It's other factors that you like about the brand um, that have kind of set them apart. And I think, Simon, that links really well to one of our 2021 trends, which is beauty revalued. And that really looks at the way, what consumers value in the purchase that they're making. So you're right. It might not be because the brand is totally sustainable. It might be a different element that they're seeking from the brand, but really kind of looking at this shift in value and what consumers place more or less value on and finding kind of that sweet spot where you can appeal to the to these different consumer groups. Indeed. Well, also, I, I believe we have a, a value driver trend as well, which is the, is it priority shift? Is that the one as well, Simon, as well? So it's, it's really interesting how value has been such a sort of a central theme to everything we've spoken about today. Um, unfortunately, that about does it, uh, looking at the time. Um, I could quite happily talk to both of you uh, all day, actually, um, and maybe uh, off, off record, maybe I will. Uh, but for now, thank you both very much for your insights. Um, this sort of this period of time has definitely flown by, um, and I know that lots of people have lots of uh, useful insights from this. Particularly that thought of you don't always have to think about the biggest 
sort of shift. You don't have to revolutionize everything. It's sometimes just tapping into that cultural community um, that can mean something to consumers. Uh, but thank you uh, so much for that. To learn more about uh, everything we've discussed today, uh, to learn more about Mintel, to learn more about our trends and our drivers, and then please feel free to uh, head to Mintel.com or access the client platform and you'll find out all that information plus so much more uh, as well available to you as well. Uh, also, be sure to subscribe to Little Conversation wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, but all that's left for me to say is thank you so much uh, for joining me today, Lauren. Thank you uh, for your insights. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you to you as well, Simon. Thank you very much for taking the time to take us through uh, the trends and the drives as well. Um, again, some great insights from you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, and lastly, uh, thank you very much to all our listeners as well uh, for joining us as well. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. Have a great day.